Hello and welcome to the second edition of the BJ Psych Open podcast. My name is Piyush Pushka. I'm one of the two digital content editors of the BJ Psych Open, along with Dr. Romain Gadolrad. And today I'm joined by two of the authors of a paper published in the September 2021 issue of BJ Psych Open. And we're also very lucky to have a frontline NHS healthcare professional who was working through the pandemic. Uh, so he has some first-hand experience of the issues discussed in the paper that we're going to talk about. So I'll introduce each of you. First author of the paper is Dr. Esther Murray, a senior lecturer in health psychology at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry. Uh, her recent research is on moral injury, and she's co-edited a book on the mental health and well-being of healthcare practitioners. Joining her is Professor Richard Williams, who's Professor Emeritus of Mental Health Strategy at the Welsh Institute for uh, Health and Social Care at the University of South Wales. Richard advises governments and professional organisations on managing the psychosocial aspects of emergencies, disasters and major incidents. And his particular interest uh, recently has been on secondary stresses. And last but certainly not least, we have Morwena Maddock, who's a senior sister on the critical care unit at Southmead Hospital in the North Bristol NHS Trust. Mo worked through the pandemic and experienced firsthand the stresses of providing care in difficult circumstances. She's also the lead for well-being on the unit. So thank you all of you for joining us today. Esther and Richard, we're going to be discussing your paper, which is entitled Let Us Do Better, Learning Lessons for Recovery of Healthcare Professionals During and After COVID-19. So Esther, I'm going to ask you to summarise the paper for our listeners, but first, Tell us a bit about the title and the opening quote from Maya Angelou, which is, I'll just read it out. Do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Thanks, Piyush. So early on, quite early on, I think, Richard will know better than me in the pandemic. When the lockdown started in March 2020, it was when everything kind of hit and I I wanted to know what I could do to help. I think a lot of people were in that position of wanting to know what we could do to help. And um, I went to the literature to see what was known. And I was really shaken, really shaken by the fact that we actually knew quite a lot about what happened to people in pandemics and epidemics. Um, it was by no means the first pandemic. There was a lot of research already there, which could have been used to put plans in place, which could have kicked in in March 2020 and not a lot later, which is what happened in reality. So when Richard and I started talking about writing a paper about this, what I wanted to say was, um, really, we ought to have known better, we did know better. So let's just take it that now that we do know, let's make sure we don't kind of forget again in the in-between times. There seems to be a sort of um, a, a willful forgetting or we'd had a lot of near misses with pandemics I think so SARS had come and then not been as terrible as maybe we thought it was going to be so that's a good for instance and uh, yeah I, it's so important that we capture the experiences that people have been through and actually use them not just conveniently shut the book and move on. Great thanks uh, so, so tell us a bit more about the paper. So the paper um, was a real labour of love actually of wanting to capture as much as we could in one place to say listen we really need you to think about the challenges that COVID is so so COVID itself as a disease brings certain challenges and then pandemics bring other challenges and one of the things that the paper addresses for example the primary and secondary stresses that Richard's going to talk about like the layers of experience okay so people's experiences aren't linear they're not simple. We experience things as our professional selves at work. And then we experience also we're humans at home and uh, people who had who are also experience, experiencing multiple losses of the loss of certainty, the loss of the idea that we had about the future where we made plans and we thought we'd go on holiday or have a weekend off and things like that. So everything was thrown into question. So we wanted to talk a bit about that. I wanted to talk about um, moral injury, which is my area of research, you know, so I wanted to talk about on what levels are people's views of themselves in the world being disturbed and how can we kind of hold them through that experience? What would we do if we were going to be brilliant at this? What would we do going forward? And also to think about things like convalescence. So one of the things that really shook me listening to people who had COVID is not just how poorly they got and how frightened they were, 
but also how long it took to get better. And so the way largely for most people, the way modern medicine is, they don't get proper poorly for long periods of time anymore. And the practice of convalescence, like the actual conscious practice of carefully coming back to a full energy kind of life, if that's going to be possible, we really lost that. Now, that used to be part of our habit, you know, before things like antibiotics and so on and so forth. So convalescence of our psychological selves as well as our physical selves I think is a really important message in the paper about how we can take time to come back it's not about rushing through this and it's interesting doing the podcast now I think reflecting on the paper now and thinking it's important to keep reflecting but we're by no means out of the woods and like perhaps we'll all sit down together in five or ten years time and we'll have a very different type of a conversation because we have had a chance to genuinely reflect. That's great. Thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed the paper. It's a really rich paper and I think challenging as well for people who want to who want to do better. And, and part of it, the, the kind of the challenge that's inherent in the paper comes partly from, you know, what you said about to a degree, we already knew so mm-hmm. much that we weren't doing in the first place. Uh, so I wanted to move move on to that next, actually, because the paper draws together kind of what we knew before the pandemic and, and then moves on to what we learned from the pandemic, including uh, what staff did to, to look after themselves and, and each other. And then it finishes with kind of recommendations. So, so with that first point, Richard, c- can you tell us a bit more about what we knew before the pandemic? I suppose, Piersh, that comes from a number of different origins in my experience. I've been a member of NHS staff for nearly 40 years. And I have to say that throughout that, I've been really quite concerned about how we put caring for the staff behind doing almost anything else. And that that had bothered me a lot. It sat in the back of my mind. And I've had a number of senior positions in the college and elsewhere and going to meetings i was quite amazed by how we end up with a system of medical training which doesn't reflect the real needs of uh, of qualified doctors who are training in any specialty Um, the second route of this is i've been involved with disasters of all kinds with terrorism and indeed with prior pandemics this is my fourth pandemic Uh, They're much more frequent than people think. And I've seen the preparations we made. I was involved, for instance, in the preparation for the flu pandemic in 2009-10 as a senior advisor to the chief medical officers of the UK. And we had gone to elaborate lengths to prepare staff to support them and to prepare managers for what they would face. In the end, a lot of that proved unnecessary. And I don't know if that disarmed people into thinking that preparation wasn't necessary, Um, but certainly this time, this pandemic hit us like a brick. It suddenly came out of almost nowhere, it seemed, and we weren't ready. We certainly weren't ready to support staff. So there's, if you like, a focused concern that builds on a longer term concern. I've always been concerned about staff. If I have to say something a bit odd, it's been much easier during the pandemic to talk about these things. It's almost a positive. I'd hate to say that there was anything really positive about this pandemic, but it certainly brought care of staff to the fore. And although we would prefer, I'm sure, not to have to be um, having these conversations, I think, I hope that this is a door that will shut behind us and we can't go back. Certainly, I've been watching junior medical staff getting more and more stressed about their careers, about what they want to do. And I've watched fewer and fewer of them wanting to be consultants. Now, a lot of them do go on to be consultants. I've been very concerned about nurses. Uh, because they're always at the bottom of the heap, it seems to me, when it comes to uh, in-service training, money for 
um, their support, getting time out, that kind of thing. I was only talking to a very distinguished professor of nursing research yesterday about just that. So I think we've got a lot of fences to mend before we can move on. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is that these what um, NHSEI called legacy issues coming home to roost. We didn't solve them before the pandemic. We've struggled and worked very hard to support staff through the pandemic, but they haven't gone away. And we must actually therefore value staff more. We must put a lot more effort behind their care if we are to resolve the current situation. So maybe that's enough for now on this topic and maybe we should move on. But all I'll say is I just hope that this is an ill wind uh, and that we actually derive some good out of it. Thanks. The paper mentions a review that found that being female, being a nurse, experiencing stigma or having contact or risk of contact with infected patients and experiencing quarantine were all risk factors for distress. And it struck me that some of those factors, particularly being female, are associated with other things that I was wondering about the relevance of for work-related stress. So you know, being female in particular is associated with more precarious employment and lower pay. And I was just wondering if you found any research that explicitly explored the link between pay and job security or precarity as, as a variable for stress? Not with regard to this paper. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, I often think so. Some of that reporting on sex is often um, is sort of incidental. Um, so so you'll, they'll say, oh, you know, being female made you more susceptible to, to stress or whatever it might be. But there's there's no, not further reflection on it, which I think. And, yeah. And sometimes what is it think, about being female? Uh, but also, so so I think also there are some implicit assumptions there about, for example, in nursing. So this so the when people write their papers up they're still the default is to think that that's going to be someone who's female i think still yeah yes absolutely if i come early 2000s largely the one the ones that you're referring to mm. um and and also i just wonder if that's um a sort of intersectional thing and a kind of secondary stressor thing as well because we don't know necessarily about these women in the studies who were scoring being you know scoring as more vulnerable what are their responsibilities outside work because because we know that what was problematic for a lot of people was the real fear of taking the infection home and also being the carer so I'm um, you can't see this I'm waving my hand up and down because that's that's the indication of sandwich care so caring for elders as well as children which traditionally falls on um, women as well. Yes. So I think it's yeah. a complicated picture. I, I think there are two other things to draw attention to in this regard. Um, if we go to Daisy Fancourt's work, Daisy's from UCL, and she's shown very, very distinct hierarchy of problems inversely related to socioeconomic advantage. In other words, people who have more problems tend to be those with greater disadvantage, to be the less affluent. And I'm not talking about the groups you've just raised, but it's a very important point to recognise and to take the opportunity of your question to do that. The other thing is, if we're talking about nurses, is that there's a very big difference in the role of nurses as compared with other professions. Nurses stay with their patients all shift. They take everything that comes on that shift for their patients. And you just don't walk out and walk home um, at the end of that. You take some of that with you, I'm sure. But Mo will tell us about that in a minute, I'm absolutely certain. But um, and, and I think that as, as a doctor or a psychologist, almost anybody else, you will see patients for short periods of time and then move on to something or somebody else. Um, and I think that changes the demands on people in quite substantial ways. I'll leave it there. Yeah, thanks. As, as you say, we're very lucky to have Mo with us. So I was, I was going to come to you, Mo, and ask us to perhaps reflect on, ask you, sorry, to reflect on um, your experience before the pandemic and the kind of legacy issues that, that Richard's mentioned. Uh, yeah, so um, 
I suppose in some ways we were quite lucky uh, in our critical care because it was something sort of well-being, something that we sort of started thinking about four years prior to the pandemic. So actually we were almost one step ahead of a lot of areas because we'd already invested a huge amount of time and, and work into various sort of well-being projects, finding out what mattered to our staff, listening to them. And so there was a real sense of team camaraderie and 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 well-being already sort of established with our within our team but I do remember seeing uh images coming out of Europe and thinking that despite having various support systems already established that actually none of that was probably going to cater for actually what was about to hit us you know we we had various um ways of assessing for PTSD and things from one-off critical incidences, but never from a prolonged amount of time experiencing traumas and things, um, which looks, you know, from what we were seeing on the news and stuff was is what we were about to face. And and like Esther, I went away and did loads of reading about how they supported nurses and things through Ebola and things. And it was just something that we weren't really prepared for um fortunately for me that's when I teamed up with Richard and and we started looking into peer support and things but yeah it was it was very evident and and scary early on that what we were about to see was something and and deal with in terms of supporting our staff was something that we had never ever ever had to do before and and it was it was scary and I remember never feeling particularly stressed at work beforehand it's what I trained to do at critical care nursing you know that this is what we're we're used to um but just not on this kind of scale but yeah thinking it yeah it was going to be very very different this time round and so many different worries that we'd never had to consider before you know I'd, I'd never really I've looked after infected patients and things before but I never really it never occurred to me about going home and, and carrying anything with me before but now it was a real it was a reality that I was going to potentially put my family at risk uh, I moved out of the family home for large chunks of the time uh, in the early days but yeah I like to think that we were prepared but we weren't really <laughs> well it, it sounds like from what you're describing uh, your unit was more prepared to, than a lot of other units, even if it felt as if you weren't. And I'm just wondering, when when you started that work kind of five years ago, or more than five years ago, uh, what, what was the stimulus then? It's interesting, actually. It was more to do with a uh, retention and recruitment issue that we had. So it, we went about it in an entirely different way, really, to, to um, most people's way of looking at staff well-being and I think what triggered it was that we I think nationally um, recruitment and retention in ICU is is and always has been quite an issue and uh, there was a group of us that sort of came together initially because we had this passion for ICU we loved it we couldn't quite understand why anyone wanted to leave and so we went about well-being in a slightly different you know angle to a lot of other ways trusts deal with it and yeah, we realised that actually, if you have true well-being within your staff, that if they are really content and happy with the way they are at work, they're not going to leave. <laughs> so that's why we went in it that way round. Um, so that was that was our, the trigger point for all our work, really. And then uh, we saw amazing results from the various projects that we put in um, and our turnover after about a year came down dramatically. So it wasn't possibly what... <laughs> what we intended to go into but uh yeah it's uh, interesting that's that's very interesting yeah because workforce uh, retention is kind of one of the legacy issues that you know the paper's talking about and actually at your unit you you, you were already addressing it which i think probably stood you in good stead when the pandemic did hit so can you tell us a bit more about how you managed as a unit, how you manage those stresses for, for your staff during the pandemic? I don't know. Actually, during the pandemic, it was very hard, I think, actually, in, in all honesty, reflecting back, is that actually we had all these various support systems in place, but actually at that moment in time, when you're in the thick of it, it's actually the last thing that people want. <laughs> they don't want to stay on at work any longer than they have to they want to go home so all of those uh, well peer support came later on in in the pandemic but you know one-to-one -one chats and, and support systems that we had in place 
people just didn't have the, the headspace for them. Um, and we kind of had to acknowledge that and acknowledge that actually those things would come later on when we had breathing space to do them. So I guess in the thick of it, it was things like gestures of kindness, I guess, uh, that sort of kept people going. <laughs> it was that space that people had when they were coming out of the COVID areas that they had restrooms and lots of food and drink and, and all those those sort of um, temporary plasters, if you like, that help smooth things over in the heat of it, but actually the real heart of it needed to be dealt with when we had the, the headspace. And, and that's indeed what we did um, after the first wave. But yeah, and the, it's the last thing that they, they want to talk about is, yeah. is when they've just done 12, 13 plus hours of being in full PPE. They don't, they just don't want it. It yeah, comes later, yeah. it comes later. So Esther, can you relate what Mo's just described to what, what you write about in the paper about what we learned from the pandemic or during the pandemic? Yeah, so what's, it's really interesting what Mo's saying and it was really borne out in a conversation I was having this morning with a, a doctor who'd been working through the pandemic and she said she, she was, she, what she really remembers was how kind people were much kinder to each other and took much more time so this was back in 2020 and Mo alluded earlier on to the fact that things are very different now and I wonder if we'll get to that later so largely what what people need or want or whatever you want to call it right away is exactly that um you know food water to take off your PPA or whatever to, to relieve the immediate kind of physical and uh well the physical stresses straight away it's not going to be very much talking at that time because in a way what is there to talk about at that point so when no one's in a processing play nobody's dealing with anything right then except the immediate and just needing to be comforted really because it's comforting isn't it to come out and find that the the food is there the water is there the, the physical relief of taking off the ppe the fact that in that so if you're coming out of one room in the hospital into another room in the hospital, there's no threat there. So there's no contamination threat. You know, that's not like going home, which is a whole different scenario, because that then brings anxieties with it about, you know, all the business people are doing have taken their clothes off when they got home and showering before they'd even gone anywhere near their family and that that sort of thing. So um, we'd seen so that had already been reported in all the other pandemics. I'm sure Richard can. Bear, bear this out as well so we already knew that that's what was needed was was that sort of provision i wanted to ask about some some of the specific things as well that, that you mentioned in the paper there's a few kind of concepts and kind of specific things that, that you talk about um so one of the things that you talk about is the distinction between primary and secondary stresses so richard can you tell us a bit about that distinction and what and why it matters Yes, I was um, advising the Department of Health uh, before NHS England was born and worked in the Emergency Preparedness Division, was asked to prepare guidance on the sorts of matters we're talking about now, which we did. And it became clear to me from taking a sort of meta view of standing back of particular incidents and looking across them, just how differently the same incident would affect different people depending on what they've been through before. And we know that from this pandemic too. It's been amply borne out. And so a colleague and I, when we were writing in 2013 in a chapter, said we should be very advise people to be very careful about ascribing to the actual event, the index event, um, how it was that staff were affected. Yes, um, it, these direct events may affect people in substantial ways and are likely to. But there are other things too. So, uh, and we'd shown that when we'd done a piece of work and I'd been working for part of my time with Public Health England. And we've written a paper looking at the, what we now call secondary stresses, to try and Id identify what are the kind of risks in different people's circumstances that affected um, how they experienced a particular event. And there was a rich plethora of, of things emerged. In fact, we'd, we'd looked at this in great care in the work we'd done on flooding and how that impacts people. 
it was aptly summed up in January 2020, just two months before the pandemic hit in the UK, by a junior doctor, a good colleague of mine, who wrote that she was concerned that if we didn't look after doctors better, there would be nobody to look after the patients. And she was talking a lot about the organisational and other things that impact on people, not having any uh, restrooms, not having somewhere to go and converse with colleagues, uh, the sheer demand of the volume of work being moved around the country in some jobs uh, outside your will. And these things seemed to her to have a very big impact. And she said, when I went into critical care medicine, I was expecting it to be tough. It's a tough specialty. It's very demanding. But I didn't expect that all these other things would make it a tough job even tougher. So I think that puts it graphically. These are secondary stresses. They relate to, first, the whole business of your past um, the failures in organisation, the lack of staff, lack of colleagues, that kind of thing. All these things add up to provide a culture in which we work. So that's one set of things. And they may not be visited upon people in big ways until, until something disastrous strikes. And then you get not only the primary stresses from the disaster itself, in this case, a rather nasty virus, but in addition to that, all these background circumstances. And the other thing that contributes to secondary stresses is the success or otherwise of planning and preparation and reaction to the event. It, I think the biggest secondary stressor of all has got to be in this pandemic, PPE. Uh, Mose referred to it being difficult to work in, but it's even more difficult if you haven't got enough or you think you haven't got enough. It doesn't have to be true that there's not enough, though I think it probably was. Um, it, what is important is that people believe that they shouldn't overuse the PPE and therefore take greater risks. So where did that come from? It came from poor preparation and planning beforehand, and it came from lack of effective reaction at the time. And so we see this as number one on just about everybody's list in the first wave. It was still there when the third wave started. So what we've got to look at is this mix of primary and secondary stresses. A lot of the early research focused on the impact on the virus, taking it home, Mo has talked about, that sort of thing. Terribly important to stressors, primary stressor. But if we don't take account of all the other things, the organisational factors, as a paramedic put it to me last week, um, then we miss out on being able to do good. And there's two important points. Let me just add here before I stop. The first is that when the NHS executive started to look at what it was uh, that was troubling staff in their endeavour to the national offer, endeavoured to um, provide a much higher level of response um, than has ever been done before. So I give them full credit for that. But they found it was the secondary stresses that people rang the helplines about. It wasn't necessarily quite so often the primary stresses. And so that's critical to know that. And the other key thing is, when you look at the nature of the secondary stresses, they're nearly all tractable. That means that we can change them if we bend time, effort and a bit of money around them. So they are easier than the primary stressor to alter. So that's why we've made this distinction and why it's come to the fore in the course of this pandemic. But I think this is not a, a pandemic thing. It's an abiding thing. It's always there in the background to our work, whether it's somebody with a head injury or great skeins of people um, who have been affected by something that's conveyed by infection. So I think, you know, we, we've got to think about looking wider than we usually do at what we do to help people. 
Thanks. And just on PPE, one of the memorable lines from the paper is, or sentences, psychological PPE is as important as physical PPE. And it sounds like what you're saying and, and part of the argument of the paper is that that psychological PPE isn't just at the level of the individual. It's about the context and the structure and the resources around each individual and each team. Another one of the kind of concepts that's quite important to this paper is moral injury which is something that you've done lots of work on, Esther. Can, can you tell us a bit about what moral injury is and how the concept can help us to understand people's experiences during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, the concept was first introduced, or so, so, so it, okay, it wasn't introduced, it was a it was a case formulation moment. So it was a psychiatrist who'd been working with veterans in a veterans hospital in, in America. So that was his job, you know, and he did it for 20 years. And he he saw lots of people who had PTSD and had all their treatments and so on and so forth. And that they didn't get better enough, if you like, to fully reintegrate to society. And so he would facilitate a lot of the group therapy sessions. So he was watching a lot of people over that period of time. And he said, you know what I think this is? I think it's a kind of like a sort of soul injury. You know, he, he's written quite a lot of books about it. He's very interested in the moral aspects of, of war. And he said, I think it's what's happened when there's a betrayal of what's right, either by yourself or by someone in authority in a high stakes situation. So you can see that as the pandemic started hitting us in March of 2020, that is so exactly what's happening. There was a betrayal of what was right by people in authority in a high stakes situation. That's exactly what happened. So there are other ways of thinking about moral injury. People have written quite a lot about it. But the the only other one that I really like and think is useful or, or applicable for us here is is about witnessing. So Another author called Litz writes a lot about this idea of witnessing things which contravene our moral code. So in the course of life, that happens all the time. And we don't necessarily reflect terribly much on what our moral code is until that's really put into question. Like it has to be written quite large for us. We can absorb an awful lot without getting terribly involved with it. But different things strike different people and and our work as a kind of call to action. The problem is with what happens in things like pandemics is that there's only so much control that you have. And so people were were really not in control of an awful lot of things. So if you were the leader of a team, perhaps you weren't in control of how much PPE they could have. Perhaps you were not 100 percent sure of transmission mode of the virus. You weren't sure how safe it was for them to be in this room or that room at this distance or that from one another and from patients. You probably knew, um, Mo, you know only too well that um, nurses in critical care and ICU units were caring for far more patients at a time than they ever, ever would have done before. But it put people in a, or it puts still people in a double bind because you can't not do the work. You can't flounce out and say, right, well, let's just not do anything if we can't do it right and call on the health and safety rep. So this is the real difficulty. So people are needing to override their instinct to do what's right, to keep trying to change things, but they're just having to get on. And that's a really, really heavy burden. Talking about moral injury has got nothing to do with diagnosing anybody with anything. It's not an illness. It's not a pathology. It's being a person. It's a way of talking about the experiences of people that embraces that side of us that is actually part of us that we might not talk about terribly often. But it is our we do all have a moral code, whether we terribly spend much time reflecting on it or not. And to be constant, one of the really big problems about it is that the kind of ways in which it manifests in people is that it makes them feel ashamed they've actually done nothing wrong but shame is a funny thing and so we often feel it when we haven't done it wrong done anything wrong and what's ironic is of course it gives um shame and guilt um shame tends to give us a kind of contamination fear we worry that because we're we've done a wrong thing are we sometimes somehow wrong or bad people and we'd better not be around other people if we're like that. 
and, and it also affects the way we appraise other people and groups so that we would think to ourselves, well, if those people can do that thing, then I don't think I want any part of that. And that's what Shay was trying to say about coming back into society. He said, when people have, have had such experiences, reintegrating is really difficult because you don't want to bring it with you, this thing. So when I first started talking to medical students about it, and this is long before the pandemic, they'd say, do you know, I just don't tell my mum about these things. She doesn't need to know. And that's young, young people, 19 and 20, and they were, they're starting to say, no, this is this is where I keep this experience in this box with this bunch of people. And it's why peer support works because you're not frightened of, of kind of breaking people who've been through the same experience of you. So it's why people are, feel able to talk to their peers. They've got a shorthand with them and they can't sort of hurt them. So uh, this is why it's really important to have, I think, words to talk about that aspect of the experience, because if we don't address it, we can put on all kinds of psychological support or well-being things, all kinds of things for people that they can't access because they've already shut themselves out of that. Because it's not sort of safe and it's not just about when we talk about safety, it's not just what might be done to us, it's what we might do to other people. So it affects lots of different things when you talk about moral injury. And of course, in a really practical sense, if somebody's very shut down, if they're extremely distressed, if they feel bad about themselves and the world around them, they're not going to be an effective team member because they can't, because they're avoiding, we avoid our difficult feelings, so they'll be avoiding their team members, they'll be avoiding the kind of um, contact that kind of uplifts you, like any sort of chat or friendliness or sharing a smile or, or any of that kind of stuff, or, or being kind to one another, they'll be avoiding all that because they're in a really difficult place with their shame at that time. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Mo, I don't know if you, you want to come in there and say anything about whether the concept kind of resonates for you and your experience during the pandemic? I guess for us, and I think I'm not alone, and I probably think every nurse that's ever worked in critical care during the pandemic will agree with this, but I guess the one that stands out the most for me in terms of moral injury is the end of life care of our patients. It's something that we excel in normally, that we put real pride into, and we just haven't been able to deliver it. Okay, thanks, Mo. I think it's worth adding, Piyush, that consistently experiencing shame and guilt has a very bad prognostic significance. I think it's a kind of stressor that becomes internally self-generating and that erodes people from the inside out and therefore is very important. I was only talking with a senior nurse yesterday about these kind of things and the kind of things that nurses carried during this and f a feeling responsible for acting as relatives when the relatives couldn't visit patients. That's another very stressing and challenging event. And the nurses took it on voluntarily and felt moved to do it. But And without it, perhaps things have been a lot worse. So I'm very keen that we recognise that these kinds of stresses of a moral nature come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Thanks. And Richard, can you tell us a bit about the part of the paper that makes recommendations for what needs to change? Uh, well, I think this Piers, goes right back to the beginning of our conversation. It's about now that we know better we should be doing better it's it's where the title of the paper takes us frankly and we do know better actually we've known better for a long time but the, what this pandemic has done is to bring this to a focus for us and i'm hoping the genie won't go back in the box that somehow having had this experience it, this hopefully will fundamentally change how we approach care of staff when a lot of people were complaining about the sorts of things I listed, lack of place space for staff, lack of opportunities for food, lack of opportunities for showers and all that kind of thing. Some of the eminent hospitals closed their private wings and turned them over to the staff. It's 
that tells you something, I think, that these are not um, luxuries. These are necessary facilities. And w when we close them down, I'm, I'm guessing in pursuit of the cost that they exerted on the Exchequer, then we we should take that much more seriously. We have to have these kind of support facilities for staff in very practical terms. And Mo's very moving account of how important were the basic things of life. And I picked up two things that feeding, eating and actually being kind to each other. The, the, the momentary kindnesses are critical to this. We've got to create a different culture in the NHS, which is not so much about performance and managing performance and targets and your your place on the uh, 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 on the dashboard, but um, there the, has to be room too for the obligatory kindnesses of life. So th that's critical and key to this. But we also recommended some other things that this system of keeping well staff who are still well, of being able to refer people who need it. But importantly, that group of people who are struggling in the middle, and, and it's most people in the middle there somewhere struggling in their own ways, um, we need to keep them together. We've got to take that bit where people are distressed and struggling much more seriously. And that comes back to teams. We've got to, the things that really help staff are coherence of teams and keeping teams together um, and helping them to be kind to one another and to listen and hear are critical to this endeavor. If only we could install that for the NHS in more even times, because um, the NHS is always a tough place to be because you don't go to a hospital unless you need something. Um, seems to me that that's what we should be looking to do is to change the culture. But we, more than that, there's some practicalities. Some people cut short their student years, maybe only by months, but came straight into a profession at a very demanding time. Nurses, certainly uh, medical students, Definitely. But other people, too, I'm absolutely so sure they must be offered the opportunity to go back and reflect on a recapture what they lost when they didn't have that important transition period. In my view, we also need to think about people who volunteered, who came out of retirement to, to help. We can't just let them go and, and, and slip away. We need to actually honour those people. And then there are people who've been moved around the NHS estate. They've been sent to jobs which weren't ordinarily theirs and for which they weren't training. And their own training has therefore been impacted. And we need to make good all of that. I fear that we haven't put enough effort behind those catch-up activities. Uh, maybe there's some very good reasons for that. But it felt to me as if we went straight from wave two of the pandemic to reopening the NHS in full capacity. Now, I know from talking to the staff that they want to actually get waiting lists down. They feel they own these waiting lists and feel responsible for them. It's not a case of persuading them, but actually what they also needed was time for rest and recuperation and reflection. The three R's in my book, as well as that. And I just worry that we're going to push past all of that and pretend that it doesn't happen. So I think denial is not the ideal mechanism here. Thanks. So, I mean, the paper's very clear on what kind of things need to change, but uh, and also talks about the fact that actually we, we knew quite a lot of that kind of before, even before the pandemic. We did. Um, the paper doesn't really talk about how to kind of affect or realise those changes or, you know, how to encourage or force leaders to make those kinds of changes that, that obviously that would be a different kind of paper so, some of your kind of recommendations can be fulfilled kind of by teams within hospitals or at the level of the hospital or the trust so some of your recommendations are, are aimed at kind of leaders and managers within services but others 
you know, have to be fulfilled or will have to be fulfilled by, by governments, really. And so in that sense, the paper is kind of has quite uh, significant political ramifications. For example, kind of ending corridor medicine would very obviously benefit both patients and staff. Uh, just before I put you on the spot, I hope you don't mind if I throw my kind of two cents in um, with my personal view. Um, this is not the view of the BJ Open. This is me as an individual. Uh, for me, this paper should should be a rallying cry for kind of making the most of the power that we have as as professionals. And it, for me, if, if listeners and readers are passionate about this paper and supporting colleagues and yourselves uh, and your own well-being, my belief is that the best way you can do that is to join your union, shout loudly, be as politically strident as you can. Because uh, the, pap- the paper makes recommendations based on empirical evidence from rigorous scholarly research, but readers and listeners can go further than making recommendations. Readers can make demands of your managers and of your governments uh, and, you know, and, and, and not back down until they're met and, you know, unite with your colleagues to, to make demands together. So that, that's my view. I was wondering if any of you were to say anything about how we might begin to go about realising the recommendations made in this paper. I do, because I do believe there's power in a union, but then um, I would. And I I come from, you know, I'm a member of a different union and I come from a slightly different space. But let's also be really careful that we don't turn to the people who are exhausted and who've been through the thing and say, do you know what you need to do now is get up and fight? Because, you see, we have a unique opportunity because we have a unique health service in this country. And so it's kind of belongs to all of us if you want to you you know we can draw the analogy like we all pay our uh, national insurance for it yes so we can all consider ourselves a part of it and fight for it it's not just for staff to stand up again and say again what they need and what they want we're humans you know as some of it is just human stuff like keep the blessed canteen open so that people who are on a night shift can get something to eat don't charge for parking that kind of really obvious human, even humane kinds of things. So it is, the paper is a rallying cry and it is, I I think I just wanted it to happen because right back at the beginning, I was so horrified. I was so upset by the fact that all that research was already there. And I mean, Richard knows better than me, but it, it really shook me that all of that stuff was already known, but it wasn't being implemented. And we can, sort of be great allies can't we some of the people listening to this podcast will work be working in the NHS and so you can be an ally and you can be active and then some of us don't work in the NHS and so we can be allies from the outside we we should all be doing everything we can to try and make this change and exerting every bit of political power that we have and and yes join your union (laughs) help your union be better (laughs) and also lean on your allies for support that's what we should be to one another that is, hasn't that hasn't the pandemic shown us whatever the rhetoric might be about oh my goodness go and eat in restaurants or go shopping or go back to the office or whatever the heck there's an awful lot of other stuff has gone on in which people have said actually I'm not sure I am going to go back to what I did before I think I quite like the way things are different now and perhaps I am different and I see the world slightly in a different way perhaps our energy is much better spent in our activism and in trying to create change than it was in buying endless cups of increasingly expensive coffee. Who am I to say, eh? (laughs) Thanks. Uh, So uh, I'm going to go around each of you now and just ask you to tell us kind of what your biggest take-home message was from the paper. So I'll start with, who wants to go first? Shall I start with you, Richard? Okie doke, yes. Uh, actually, I think I've probably said most of what I need to say. I'm very concerned that um, we should recognise the corporate experience of all of this, that actually we're in it together. Um, and we, nothing in the NHS can be better than the sum of its parts unless we actually um, use each other in a very positive way which means you have to give back. And I think, so it's a two-way process in my view. We've got to be there for each other and in the hope that they will be there for us. 
this is the essence of expected support, which is so powerful in keeping teams together. I am a member of this team and therefore I can rely on you in an unspoken way. We don't need to have the conversation to support me should you think I'm not coping. And I can then lie back in, in that as a kind of safety harness and know that even if I didn't know I was having a tough time, that somebody else would actually tap me on the shoulder and, and be there for me. When things get tough, it's that kind of reliance that kind of teases a part of it. And in the second and third waves, that's what I think I've seen in the NHS, is we've stopped relying on each other quite so much. We've become a little bit more individual and we need to push back against that. And we need to be allowed to be teams and to have time to be teams. And that's what we should be demanding is not to cut down on the work, but to actually have time to reflect with our colleagues. Thanks. Uh, do you want to go next, Esther? Yeah, so my take home, or what I would also like everybody else to take home, um, is the message about convalescence. I think we need to slow down as much as we can. I don't mean really in um, a kind of practical sense of, of, of about like slowing the pace at work or something. I don't mean that because I think work can be really sustaining. I mean to resist the rhetoric about new normals and it's all over and things like that. Most people working in healthcare know that it isn't. Um, and I think there's some really unhelpful talk in the ether and behaviour that isn't useful for people and to actually acknowledge that this is, has, is being have been something enormous and to give it its due and take time to recover from it you know light duties beef tea rug on your knees watching the sunset or the sunrise whichever one you get you know and, and a lot of that a lot of that for for a long time and that that's really really all right you don't have to rush out back onto the dance floor or or wherever it might be to to prove something or because you've been told to it's all right to take time Thanks. Mo, any, any last words? Yeah, I think I agree with Esther massively. I mean, this paper rings so unbelievably true to me. Ever, absolutely everything that's written, yeah, I've lived it. And um, I think that the recuperation, the recovery from this is so incredibly important. There's been days recently where I can just see the fatigue in my team and I just worry terribly that if they don't get that, that we won't have a team at the end of this if we're carrying on the way we're carrying on. But you know, when the time comes, when we get those small breaks between these waves, that we really need to grab hold of those opportunities. And, you know, none of us are saying that we all need a month's unpaid leave or paid leave even. But what we need is when we have got those opportunities that, again, you know, much like Richard says, we need to be there as a team. We don't need to be taken off to help other areas of the hospital and things like that. We need to be able to recover together, to reflect together. And, that's the only way I think we're going to be able to continue really they're shattered and they need some time to to rest up <laughs> super thanks all so just before we finish I wanted to mention an organization called doctors in distress despite the name it's actually for all healthcare workers uh, not just doctors and it's an organization that provides support for people suffering distress or burnout and the support is from other people in similar positions. So it's peer support in facilitated group sessions. So if you're interested in that, um, search for Doctors in Distress. I'm not sure if any of you want to mention any other organisations. No. So Dr. Esther Murray, Professor Richard Williams, Mo Maddock, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, just to remind everyone, the accompanying paper is available on BJ Psych Open. It's called Let Us Do Better, Learning Lessons for Recovery of Healthcare Professionals During and After COVID-19. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Open podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. The most recent one is from the BJ Psych International Journal on stresses on mental health in Bangladesh. And there's also a recent one from the BJ Psych Advances that discusses recent advances in what we know about ECT. Thanks everyone. See you next time.